Hi, my name's Clyde Dobbin and I'm an employment partner at Paris Smith. And today I'm joined by um, Claire Merritt, who's also a partner in the department, and Andrew Wiltshire, who's an associate in the department. Um, what we're looking at today is the tribunal process. Um, we've had lots of inquiries over recent months in relation to tribunal claims. So we thought it'd be useful to do um, two podcasts on the tribunal process. The second podcast will actually look at the tribunal hearing itself. But what we're going to look at today is some of the key steps in both presenting a tribunal claim and then once a tribunal claim has been presented, what employers should then do in response to that claim. Um, so without more ado, if we start um, looking through the process. Um, so the first question that I've got, um, and I think probably one for you, Claire, is um, I hear that before you start the process, you have to go through what's called ACAS early conciliation. Um, so perhaps if you can just explain a little bit more about what ACAS early conciliation is and what you have to do. Yes, so I can't quite remember how many years ago the law changed. I think it's probably about eight years ago now. Um, and uh, that's when we had to start going through ACAS conciliation. So the previous process, we would just go straight into the claim. And, and I think we're going to be talking about that in a bit more detail later. But what they decided is actually let's give people an early chance to try and settle and resolve their differences. So every claimant or every potential claimant, an employee who has a complaint, needs to register with ACAS. So ACAS are a conciliatory body who will look to try and resolve this and mediate a solution at an early point. So what you would do is you go online, you fill in your details and you submit that to ACAS. Um, and that will include details of the claim um, and details of, of what's happened to you. Then ACAS will contact that employee or former employee and talk through the issues. And it will just be a conversation where they'll try to understand more about the claim. And then um, they will then contact the employer or the former employer explain the potential claims that are there and also try and find a resolution. So they will be asking um, about what uh, the employee wants, what the employer or former employer is prepared to give. And so that period of ACAS conciliation will be six weeks. So there'll be a six week period to go through that conciliation. And that actually changed relatively recently. It used to be four weeks with an option to add on two weeks. Um, so if there is resolution, great, the ACAS officer can tie that all up. If there isn't, they will issue a certificate which will have an ACAS conciliation number on it for the employee to decide what they want to do as the next step. That number is really important because you will need that number to bring a claim in the future. Um, and then looking at time limits, it is actually very complex after ACAS conciliation finishes. Um, and it's something that, you know, even us lawyers have to sort of sit down and wrap a cold towel around our heads to work out um, the time limits sometimes. So generally, you'll have around a month, at least a month after ACAS conciliation finishes to bring your claim, but it could be anything up to 10, uh, 10 weeks. So um, what I'd suggest is get some legal advice if you are concerned at all about your time limit um, after you've gone through ACAS conciliation. Okay, thank you, Claire. Just to come up with a question on that, if you're an employer, what advice would you give to employers in terms of the process? And do you, do you find employers are engaging with the process or are they just waiting to see whether a tribunal claim is then issued? 
I think it's interesting. There's two schools of thought in relation to ACAS conciliation. And I think initially when we started having early conciliation, um, there were a lot of employers who said, well, we don't have to engage in this process um, and we're not going to basically bring a claim and we'll see see you in court in that sense. We'll, we'll deal with this seriously when we get to that point. Um, and there's still a lot of employers who take that view now. Um, and sometimes that's the appropriate view to take, depends on the merits of the claim. Um, but I think a lot more employers are now seeing it as a commercial um uh, you know, commercial imperative, basically. Let's see if we can actually avoid the the time, the hassle, the, the investment of our management staff in getting this resolved sooner. And I also think it's a really good opportunity to learn from the employee what their perspective is and what's happened to them through the medium of an independent conciliator. So it's actually a great commercial exercise to try and avoid a claim later on. It's also a really good information gathering exercise. Um, so there are merits in really thinking about it hard. And I am now seeing, I would say, more settlements at early stage than we did, let's say, five years ago. I think um, another point is obviously, I think we'll go on later as to how overburdened the tribunal system are. How are ACAS coping in terms of ACAS early conciliation? Are they overburdened as well? From my experience, um, I found that ACAS have been, you know, stretched. I wouldn't. I'm not going to say that they are um, not um, struggling with the workload. In particular, I think there's more tribunals that have been issued since the pandemic. But equally, at the same time, I've not had any problems at early conciliation getting to a conciliator, getting um, someone to respond. So I, I would say ACAS at early conciliation. Uh, stage in my dealings with them have been um, really responsive and, and very um, on the ball. So it's actually a good opportunity to use your, your ACAS conciliator at that stage, albeit, and I think we're going to talk about it later, they will have an ongoing duty to conciliate throughout the claim. So if you don't get it settled at this early stage, you may be still dealing with that conciliator later on. And, and that's when I think they are dealing with a lot more claims. So have a lot more um, on their plate. Thank you for that, Claire. Obviously, the next point is the actual presenting the claim. So, Andy, do you want to just go through how a employee or ex-employee presents their claim to a tribunal? Yeah, of course. So the process is started by the employee submitting what's known as an ET1 form, um, and that's submitted electronically by the tribunal's website. So if you were to go onto the tribunal's website, you can easily find the ET1 form. Um, and it's relatively straightforward to fill out. But of course, it has to include details of the employee, known as the claimant, and details of the employer, known as the respondent. Um, details such as start date, um, job role, um, and also details of the claim itself. Now, that's really important. And obviously, the claimant has to think quite long and hard about what the claim is and, and the particulars of that claim. And typically, you would see um, tick boxes within that claim form in terms of what they're claiming, whether it be unfair dismissal, discrimination, etc. Um, and it's also quite common that they would submit a, an additional document known as grounds of claim, which will go into a lot more detail um, outlining the, the particulars um, clearly. So um, it, it is more than just a tick box exercise. Um, and, and normally that, that accompanying document grounds of claim is really important too. So once that's been submitted, the tribunal will look at the ET1 um, and they'll carry out a preliminary review um, as to whether it can be accepted or not. 
Um, and what they'll be looking at is whether it's been submitted within the required time limits. And obviously Claire's touched on that with ACAS. Typically there's a three month time limit for unfairness of claim um, or discrimination as well from the, the, the act of that trade agreement. So that's what they'll be looking at initially. Um, and also checking that they've um, inserted the correct early ACAS conciliation number as well. And once they've done all of that and the tribunal satisfied that that's been complied with, they'll then send that off to the employer um, for their response. And in terms of that, how much detail would you suggest employees include? Should it be, you know, do they need to include everything they want the tribunal to know about the claim or should they include less than that? Yeah, I think I think the the best advice we give on that is to be concise and clear because the tribunal isn't going to want to know everything about the claim. Obviously, in the in the ET one, it will be tick box in terms of what your claim is. But then, in terms of more detail, um, the tribunal or a judge looking at it would like it to be concise and clear rather than a long rambling document because it will be much easier for him or her to read and and digest and understand what the claim is. Um, what about documents? Sometimes I see ET1s which attach copies of grievances or grievance outcomes. What would you say on that? I would say it's a good idea not to, because um, the tribunal generally say don't attach anything. So, for example, a covering letter, they say don't do that. Um, so the only documents that you need to submit is the ET1 form um, and either include further particulars of your claim within that document, because you can, or if it's a longer document, then just attach the, the ground to claim. But um, the tribunal won't be wanting to receive lots of other documents. That's for later in the process. Okay, so kind of moving on then. So we've issued the claim. So you as an employer have received the tribunal claim. How do you receive it and what do you then have to do? Claire, perhaps I'll go to you for this one. Thanks, Clive. Um, so if you're an employer, um, you will be notified um, that there's been a claim form issued against you. And that you'll generally be notified either by email or in the post. What I would say is, especially if you're not particularly back in your workplace at the moment, because the pandemic is really, really keeping an eye on your post, because there is a strict 28-day deadline once that um, notification has been issued to you. Um, and it's you know, it, it, we can ask for extensions, but because the 28 days passes so quickly to gather the information and put the forms together, it really, you really, really need to notify your representatives or do something yourself internally um, as soon as possible, uh, because that is a really strict 28 day deadline. Obviously, there is a lot more now being dealt with by email, but you, you can't 100% guarantee it might be issued um, still in the post. Um, so once you've got that um, uh, notification and you've got your 28 day deadline, it's over to you then to submit something called an ET3 form, which is very similar to the ET1 form that uh, Andrew's just gone through. It's a tick box exercise verifying the information that the employees or former employees put into the um, ET1, um, putting your own, um, if, if figures are incorrect or dates are incorrect, putting your own um, version of those, you know, your own your own records in there. And then generally they also, uh, most um, uh, respondents will submit a defence, uh, a grounds of, of, of uh, response. So further details, um, really addressing probably the particulars that Andrew's talked about um, that the employee has put in. 
generally uh, employers instruct solicitors at this stage and solicitors will become involved but of course you may have had lawyers involved earlier in the process um, so this is about really gathering as much information as you can to give to the the lawyers to draft that response for you but you have got to be concise as Andrew said before both the ET1 and the ET3 envisage a concise assessment of what has happened and the circumstances that have happened and the legal um, claims and legal issues that have come out of that. So try and be um, as kind of brief and concise as possible um, and get that submitted to your respect, the tribunal that's had the um, claim issued within 28 days and you can submit that by email. So you can put that response in by email. And actually, it's good because you get a nice bounce back and it makes you feel that you've definitely got it submitted. Um, whereas sometimes sending things by post and uh, and uh, hand, well, hand delivery is obviously the ideal situation. But, um, you know, can uh, sometimes uh, feel a little bit you're sending something into the ether and you don't know if it's been received. OK, thank you. Um, so you put in the ET1. And then you put in the ET3. Um, what happens next then, Andy? So once the claim has been submitted and the response has been submitted as well, the uh, the tribunal will send a copy um, to the employer um, and to the employee. So as I said before, the employee will be known as the claimant and the employer will be known as the respondent. Um, and the, the judge will review both of those documents, the ET1, grounds of claim, ET3, grounds of resistance. They'll look at those and they will then decide whether um, they need to list it for a preliminary hearing or whether they can list directions and just um, send out a case management order. Um, typically, a preliminary hearing would be listed if there's if issues that need to be decided. If it's a more complex claim, um, it will be a preliminary hearing. Um, if the judge is happy with the issues and it's been concisely drafted in ET1 or ET3, then they may well just um, issue um, a case management order. Um, and importantly, that would include details of um, the case management direction. So that will be um, obviously when the final hearing is going to be heard, um, direction for disclosure of documents, which is a really important stage, uh, witness statements, schedule of loss, um, things like that. So that will all be included in the case management order or at a preliminary hearing. If it is a preliminary hearing, then typically um, if a party is represented, it will just be that representative that attends typically you know, the claimant or the respondent wouldn't actually attend that. Um, and that would usually be via telephone, although it could be in person, but typically it would be telephone um, at the moment. That would be via telephone as well. So once that's gone out, the hearing will be will be will be listed and heard, and then directions will be set which the parties would be expected to follow all the way up to the final hearing. Okay. Uh, thank you for that. Some really useful pointers there. Um, Claire's, in terms of you talked before about gathering all the evidence and giving it to the solicitor to draft the ET3. Can you just kind of go through a little bit more in detail as to what evidence you need to defend a claim and how best to claim that? Yes. So, so as part of the process, and, and as Andrew's just explained, as part of the um, orders that you will get either through a preliminary hearing or just an order from the tribunal, there will be a process called disclosure. And that's going to be disclosure of all the documents or all the, the tangible evidence in that sense. Um, and so 
and I mentioned earlier about giving all those documents to your lawyer in advance. I like asking my clients to do that because then there's no surprises when we get to disclosure, albeit um, you know, one of the, the things you learn as a lawyer is there's always more disclosure. Uh, it's uh, one of the war stories that most lawyers can talk about, um, especially on the morning of the tribunal sometimes. Um, so, uh, but the disclosure process shouldn't therefore come as a shock to either the um, claimant or the respondent or their solicitors, they should have a lot of these documents already. But the, what the tribunal will generally order is a list of documents to be produced. So both parties list out descriptions of the documents, dates of the documents, and then they will exchange them. Um, at which point the other side um, will look through their list and request what documents they don't think they've had sight of previously. And that process can take a number of weeks, can take a number of months, um, depending on the volume of those documents and the time that the tribunal have given you to go through that process. And then once that process is complete and everyone's seen all of the relevant documents from both sides, a bundle will be produced and, and that will be for the hearing, which the next podcast will deal with. Um, but your obligation as the claimant or the respondent is not to withhold any relevant documents. So it's not a case of just disclosing things that you think are favourable to your case. You have to disclose everything that you have. And that is a, an obligation you have to the court um, and the tribunal. So um, it's really important to do a thorough search and um, produce everything as early as you can, because those nightmare stories, that all of us lawyers have of extra documents being produced on the day of the tribunal are really detrimental to people's um, you know, uh, reputations and their believability at the tribunal because it looks like you've been hiding something. And invariably, it's just a mistake, but um, it's best to be on top of your documents right from the beginning. And I suppose there is a second set of evidence that you need as well and that's that intangible evidence that it's not a document that's not a recording and that's, that's not something like that and that's witness evidence so what an individual who was dealing with the matter um, did by way of process and what they were thinking by way of motivation etc or alternatively if you're the um, claimant how it made you feel, how you were treated, um, your perception of what was happening. And again, you produce those witness um, statements after disclosure. So you dovetail all of the evidence in together into those witness statements and then exchange them in advance of the hearing so that you have documents and you have your witness evidence ready before the hearing. I think we'll be going through the witness statements in a bit more detail in the second podcast. But going back to the first one in relation to disclosures, probably more for if you're an employee or a claimant, what do you do if you think that the other side haven't disclosed all the documents and there's some documents that you think are really helpful to your case, which you which you want? What what would you then do? Well, first things first is obviously ask for them. Um, so ask for those documents um, the, and if they aren't then forthcoming, because again, it could have been a mistake, it could have been an oversight that they weren't disclosed. Um, if they're not forthcoming at that stage, you would make an application to the tribunal. So the tribunal would then um, make a decision about whether those documents were relevant, whether they were um, available. And, you know, we often get into big debates about 
destruction of documents and if documents have been destroyed through a GDPR process or something like that. Um, and, and the tribunal would make an order at that stage. And again, if those documents weren't disclosed at that stage, it would be breach of a tribunal order, which is, is pretty serious stuff. Okay, so kind of moving on, um, obviously, um, Andy, it can be expensive in terms of dealing with, with this process, in terms of legal fees, et cetera. So if you as an employer, for example, if you successfully defend your claim, can you get any of those costs back? It's a, it's a good question. It's a, it's a very common question, actually, uh, particularly amongst respondents, because obviously their, their position is that they've been, um, they've been asked to um, incur a lot of time, a lot of cost in defending a claim. And often they might say that claims without merit. Um, and, and they want to know, well, can, can, can they recover any costs if they're successful with tribunal? And unfortunately, the answer is, in, in the most case, no, you can't, because the tribunal is a no-cost forum. So even if a respondent is successful in defending a claim, it's very rare that a tribunal will make an order as to cost. So um, the tribunal is different to a county court situation where there, there is more scope to recover costs. Um, so I've said it's, it's unlikely, and I say it's unlikely because there is very limited scope where uh, an employment tribunal can make an order for costs. And that's typically in a situation where um, either parties acted uh, vexatiously or unreasonably or disruptively. Um, and in that situation, there can be an application for costs and the tribunal will assess that as to whether um, it's, it, it's meritorious of, of awarding an order for costs. Um, I suppose a typical situation may well be if a claimant has brought a claim that really has no merit at all. Um, and despite advice from even it may be a judge at a preliminary hearing or, um, or correspondence from the other side saying that this is without merit, they proceed um, regardless of that. Um, or maybe a situation where um, either side has just failed to comply with, with case management directions. Um, so it could be those kind of situations, but typically the answer is no, you can't. Um, you can't, uh, well, you can apply for cost, but it's very unlikely the tribunal will award it unless there's been vexatious or unreasonable behaviour. Okay, thank you. So, obviously, in light of that, you may want to consider kind of settlement. Um, Claire, you, you talked about ACAS early conciliation. What options are there for settlement once a claim's been presented? Yes, yeah, so earlier I mentioned the ongoing um, obligation for ACAS to conciliate throughout the process and try and find um, a negotiated solution um, and so it runs throughout the tribunal process you can go to your ACAS conciliator and make offers or make proposals at any stage in the process and I suppose it occurred to me after I'd answered that question about early conciliation people might be thinking well what does settlement involve um, and actually well generally settlement involves some money passing uh, passing hands that, that's that's fundamentally it and um, that can be quite difficult psychologically for certain claimants because actually money doesn't rectify the situation that you found yourself in it doesn't make you feel any better or oh, it might make you feel better when you spend the money on something you want but um, it's not going to erase what's happened it, it's it's you know it just can't do that but unfortunately our system doesn't work like that. You, you, you probably won't be made to feel better by a, a, a positive um, employment tribunal judgment because ultimately what has happened has happened. But fundamentally, that's what a settlement is. It's money 
changing hands. Sometimes, and this is pretty rare, there is no um, actual financial um, settlement or financial package at all. And it might just be something like agreeing a, a reference or um, sometimes, and again, it's very rare to get some form of apology or some sort of, um, uh, you know, change in policy going forward or something like that. But generally, there is a financial settlement that's negotiated back and forth. And there's a lot of factors that go into that financial settlement and that negotiation, which will include the merits of the claim, uh, which as lawyers are endlessly going on about. Um, it will involve the losses of, of the claimant, how many, how much um, have they lost through either losing their job or the treatment they've received. Um, but it'll also talk about commercial benefit, the time and the tribunal. Um, you know, I, I and I'm sure um, Clive and Andrew have definitely been, uh, you know, in conference with both claimants and respondent clients and have explained that maybe this hearing is going to be for three or four weeks um, and it's going to take a whole month out of everyone's life and suddenly settlement seems like such a better option than that sort of loss of time. So there is a lot of factors that go into making a settlement but the truth is the majority I say tentatively, um, the majority of employment tribunal claims do settle before the final hearing, um, not exclusively. So I don't think you should go into the process thinking it will definitely settle, but um, the majority do because of that complex set of factors and people see the benefit of a commercial end to the process. And is that normally, do you normally do that through ACAS or what about tribunal mediation? So um, the vast majority of um, settlements are through ACAS and ACAS will draft up a document called a COT3, um, which is C-O-T-3, capital C-O-T-3. Um, and I still have no idea actually what that stands for after all of these years of doing employment law, but that's what it's called. Um, so it's generally through ACAS. However, there is an ability to have um, tribunal, uh, so uh, judge-led mediation, um, which can be successful. And I believe the um, uh, the rates of settlement after uh, judicial mediation are very high. Um, and also you can have um, other sorts of mediation. So you can have, uh, bring in a, a private mediator uh, if you think that a roundtable mediation might be successful. Uh, whereas ACAS most well, all of the contact you have with ACAS is either via email or telephone, very rarely face to face. So um, so that's another option. So there are plenty of options to explore, but majority of the time, because ACAS is free um, and very flexible, that's the, that's the method for, for settling claims. And you're right, isn't it? We always use these words like COP3 and ET1, etc. but not quite sure what they mean. The other one, which I always wonder about, is there's a form ET1 and there's a form ET3. So what's form ET2? I know. What, what is it? <laughs> anyway, uh, moving on from that question, which we don't know the answer to. Um, Andy, in terms of process, how, how long does this whole process take? Yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, obviously, claimants and respondents want to know that. And it's, it is very difficult to give any an exact um, exact time frame, really. Um, as Claire said, it, it, a settlement could happen at any point up until the final hearing. But if it doesn't, then ideally, you probably want a, a final hearing within six to 12 months of the claim being issued. 
the reality is probably slightly different to that, especially at the moment. And at the moment, I think it's fair to say that the employment tribunal is, is struggling to cope with the sheer volume of claims that are being received. And I think that's coupled with the fact that there's been changes um, and upheaval due to COVID as well. So I think it wouldn't be unfair or unreasonable to say that you'd be looking at, at at least 12 to 18 months probably to get to a final hearing. And I know that we've we've um, recently had cases listed for uh, spring to late 2022 um, on some cases. So I think um, it's difficult to say, and obviously it could settle, as Claire said, before the final hearing. But for those people who want a, a, a rough guide, you'd be looking at probably 12 to 18 months. And I think that would be a reasonable estimate. It could be, could be quicker. It could even be longer. It also depends on the case itself. If, if it's a complex case, as, as Claire said, it could be listed for three, four weeks, for example, and it may well be that the court has got less capacity and that will be at the end of that time frame. If it's a one-day hearing, it could be um, a bit a bit sooner. So it depends on a variety of factors, but at least a year. Okay, thank you. Um, I think this probably falls upon me to draw it to a close now. So both the first point is to thank you both, Andy and Claire, for joining me and your helpful guidance and information in relation to the tribunal process. Hopefully people found that a useful overview of the process or how to present a claim, how to respond to a claim. And obviously today we've dealt with the process up to the actual tribunal hearing. Um, people should have a look out for our second podcast, which we'll be doing, which will be on the tribunal process, when I'll be joined by um, David, uh, apartment department, and by uh, an associate in the department. And during that podcast, we'll be looking through um, what to expect actually on the day of the tribunal hearing itself. But hopefully people found that a useful overview of the process up to the tribunal hearing and um, look forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.